Thomas Jefferson School, or TJ, in St. Louis, Missouri, is a unique place. A boarding and day school with a small community of students from all over the world, our mission asks us as educators to provide the strongest possible academic background. Our mission also asks our students to desire to lift up the world with beauty and intellect. In this episode, we speak to Lonnie Mahanta. After TJ, Lonnie went to Stanford and eventually to get a law degree at the University of California. After practicing as an attorney, she joined Lyft, working on labor law and how that is impacted in the modern world. She's currently a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. And in 2017, she was awarded a women leader in tech law by the recorder. This is a fantastic conversation we have, not just talking about TJ, but issues in work, connections to politics, and eventually how to make an impact. This was an incredibly fun conversation, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it as well. So Lonnie, thanks for joining on the conversation series. Where are we finding you today? Thank you for having me. Excited to be chatting with you and um, talking a little bit about TJ and everything, you know, that's happened since then. So I live in Northern California, just north of, in a town just north of San Francisco called Larkspur. I previously worked in San Francisco, but now we're all working from home. So, yeah. Is it, has that been your COVID experience that we're recording in, in March of 2021? So how, how has the last 12 months been for you? Uh, it's been, it's been quite a whirlwind and upheaval of sort of every routine that I previously had in my life for better and for worse. March of last year, March of 2020, all of a sudden we started to see everything start to shut down. You know, I, I worked in public policy at Lyft at the time. So seeing a lot of things that were happening in other parts of the world and seeing all of a sudden sort of a slow from my perspective response in the U S and then all of a sudden in March San Francisco just shut down. I think it was the for very first week of March and that I went home one like maybe on Tuesday of that week. And I think I went back to the office two more times in the following uh, subsequent year. Yeah, everything seemed to, to be very sudden last March. We, we made that tough decision to close the campus. And yeah, it was something like making a decision on Monday and then students traveling on Wednesday. And then the following, if I might be messing up the days, but sometime later that week, we, we had the, the travel restrictions come down. So we just barely got oh our God. students home in time. So. Yeah. And you know, I had a lot, I worked with a lot of um, young people too. And so a lot of people were trying to figure out where do they go? What do they do? Do they stay in San Francisco? Do they go sort of a lot of people left to go move back in with their parents? Actually, I saw that from a lot of people, um, but for me came back, you know, just my family, my kids were out of school very quickly. And all of a sudden, you know, we're very fortunate. My husband and I both had our jobs still, but we had full-time jobs and kids at home and we're trying to all remote learn and, and be full-time parents. And uh, yeah, it was quite, it was the first couple of months were, were really hard, really hard. Let's jump back, you know, take, take a step back. I'm kind of curious how you uh, found yourself connected to TJ and talk a little bit about your time at the school. I remember it so well. I was in sixth grade and I was starting to think about where I was going to go for seventh grade. Um, and so my parents really kind of were like, well, let's, let's see what's out there. So I, I, I looked at a lot of different schools. I looked at, gosh, what, what, 
we were maybe in a parkway district. And so I visited this um, parkway that was, you know, that I would have gone to John Burroughs, uh, a bunch of other places. And then I went to do my tour at TJ. I remember so well, you know, taking the, the test, you know, and I, somebody's one of the older students is like, you know, gives the little hey, look out for the word kernel. Like, remember what that actually is. You know, I don't know if that's still something that happens, but it was like a, you know, a, a moment that really stuck with me. And then it was either that day or, or perhaps another day on a tour as I was still deciding. I remember sitting in the sunroom in a seventh grade English class. And one of the other kids that was on the tour with me was Jim Pesek, who already knew everything about TJ because his older brothers were there. And so he already knew everything that was going on. And he seemed so just aware of everything. And I just felt like a total, like I had no idea what was going on, who all these people were. Everybody seemed so smart and so sophisticated. And Jim starts reciting um, poetry in the middle of that class. I'm pretty sure it was Red Wheelbarrow. Maybe not. I can't remember. Showing Um, off a little bit. He was showing off a little bit, but he knew what was going on, but like it stood out to me. I loved it. And I was like, this school is so different than any of the other places that I visited and toured. And I just like told my parents immediately, I was like, this is where I got to go. And it's funny because I think back and I was, I was so certain about it as a 12 year old, I guess. And my daughter is almost nine now. It's like really kind of crazy to think about her having so much being so decisive about something like this in just a couple of years, but presumably she will be. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes we we hear stories where, you know, the students are driving the the conversation of where they're going. Sometimes it's the parents, of course, and, and sometimes it's a combination of the two. Is there is there some element that you saw at TJ that you said, this is, this is the place I want to be other than, other than Mr. Pesic poetry recitation, (laughs) which went a long way. No, it was, it was the dialogue. I, it was so different than the other schools that I visited, even in that moment, which were that looked like that old style of learning, you know, of those 1950s classrooms of being lectured at, you know, with kids sitting in a row. And TJ just felt totally different than that. Even as a sixth grader, I could see that it was dialogue, um, back and forth engagement, and a lot of sort of focus on, I don't know, that aspect of it was very, very noticeable right away. And so you, you show up to TJ, did it live up to the experience? Were there, there hiccups that you found? How did you how did you get along for your, I guess it would have been six years at, at yeah. TJ? Well, so I was a day student. So my, my experience was, you know, specific to that, to that world, which is a little different than, you know, the five day and seven day borders, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was seamless. Like, I think as soon as I got there, I was like, this is where I was supposed to be. Like, it felt like the right place for me immediately. I loved the classes. I loved I loved how hard they were actually, you know, now I'm like long past my schooling days, but I kind of long to go back to school. Like I love, I love, I loved that engagement and it wasn't easy. Like things were really hard and then, you know, exams, especially, you know, later on in high school, the exams would be really tough and I had to like work really hard, but I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I think the only things that I found that like I had a little bit of a difficult time with were just the size of the student body at times. It's like what it was like, you know, what fosters such a great small class environment. But at the same time, I felt like I wasn't there were some other social experiences that were out there in the world that I wasn't, you know, getting access to or something like that. I think that was always the other side of the coin. I mean, I was a little bit lucky because I also did gymnastics quite competitively and, and a lot. And so I had practiced several hours a day 
after school. And so I had a little bit of an external community from, from that group of people too. Do you think that added to the need for time management and working hard or uh, was it, was it uh, TJ helping gymnastics? Basically, how did that outside experience impact uh, what you were doing at school? I had to be really, really organized. And so I think one of the things that like always stood out to me again, back to the sunroom, these like weird little memories keep popping up. I would always make sure that I did my homework as soon as classes ended. So like class would end at 12 and like, maybe I'd like hang out for a little bit, but by and large, it would be like, I have to go and get stuff done right now because I have to go to practice at four and I'll be in practice from four till eight, you know? And so I'd like try to get, there were, I God, these funny little memories come back. There were things that I could do more easily earlier in the day and things that were harder to do early in the day. So I feel like reading like English, OR and Greek were things that I needed to do earlier in the day. And I could do math and chem or something like, you know, whatever, whatever science class I was taking at the time. Those were the things that I could do even after practice. And when I was like tired, but I could never do Greek at the end of the night. Like I just never could. (laughs) <laughs> but that time management skill, I think is like critical. I've definitely taken that with me. And sometimes I'm better at practicing that. And sometimes I'm not, but what actually, what I've found is that in my life, when I'm busier, when I have more things going on, I'm much more efficient. Is, is that how you would describe things now, even today? hundred percent. Nice. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, are there any moments or you, you kind of mentioned a few around the sunroom that seems to be the, the locus of, of some sort of important formative experiences for you? Are there, are there other locations, other moments, other things that stick out mm. in your head? Gosh, there's like so many like little academic things and then just hanging out things, you know, just like go up to Mr. Roth's office and like get help with my Greek homework or be doing some extra credit memory work and sort of going over that with him, you know, time and time again, and sort of sitting and having those conversations, a lot of in-depth conversations. I have a lot of visual memories of sitting in Mr. Morgan's office when we would do the senior, when the seniors would pick the book that we were going to be reading. I think Jim and I did it together. And I think we picked Dr. Faustus and the other students were not happy with us. (laughs) That's what we picked. Were there other I've heard though that there are a lot of choices that some people will do just to to get that kind of reaction out of people. Was there a little bit of that in in choosing Dr. Faustus? Probably. I mean, undoubtedly there was. I'm sure we were like, you know, making a little bit of a point. And I'm probably getting some of these details wrong. My uh, my brain doesn't work with like very specific memories and details and Jim's is much better. So he'll you'll have to bring him on after and he'll he'll fact check everything that I'm saying and what I'm right. getting wrong here. What are some other things? Yeah. We you know, is there still that tree behind the really tall tree behind yellow? There I mean it's a it's a, a wider tree that's behind yellow. There is a really tall tree that used to be back there. I don't know if but Jim and I used to climb it all the time. Like we would go so far up there. And I'm actually shocked that we didn't get told. I mean, it was, there was a million branches. We were fine. Except if we fell, we definitely would not have been fine. We spent a lot of time up there and a lot of time sort of in the field and just sort of like in the more wild space around campus, we would kind of just be outside hanging out. And I don't even know what, just talking and, um, Amusing. But being outside a little bit more, obviously for health and safety reasons right now, but we're kind of unlocked this very special experience of lunchtime. 
having uh, everybody sit outside at lunch. It used to be just in the cafeteria or sometimes at the table outside of Maine. But, but now there's just people are using the pavilion, people are using the, the green space. It's almost like a college campus from time to time. There's hide and seek is now a game that's happening. It's a, it's, and it's not just middle school students. It's, it's all students are, are doing it during lunch. It's, it's really special. I think we've that's kind awesome. of stumbled onto a new tradition here. I love that. That's really great. I, I meant to ask, were you part of any clubs or sports? I, I know if you were doing the gym class or gym class, if you were doing gymnastics outside of TJ, it might not leave a lot of time to participate in other things, but did you somehow squeeze in a club or other activities? Yeah. So not sports, although um, DJ did try to get me to join volleyball for a little bit. I, I backed out once I started having a lot of gymnastics practice, but I, Jim and I were on the declaration. We were co-editors of the declaration. And so I still get my declaration copies and my kids and my husband are always like, what is this? I'm like, oh, my high school newspaper. Yeah. And we did a lot of uh, sourcing of the articles, but you know, layout. And that was one where we uh, oftentimes we would procrastinate until the last minute, but would always get done. And uh, yeah, it was fun tradition that stays till today i think <laughs> see the the late night printing that happens all overnight before the deadline yeah um, some things never change but going forward talk about your experience after tj what are some of the well first let's do a narrative of of what happened after that yeah so after so my senior year you know i started to think about you know or actually junior year you know as i'm thinking about colleges and where to apply i applied to maybe i don't know maybe five or six schools. I didn't visit every, every place in part because it was, I was still competing. And so it was hard for me to go and travel and co-visit. So I was like, okay, I'll go visit after I find out where I've gotten in. And, but the only place that I did visit um, before was Columbia. It's really where I wanted to go. It, I had my heart set on it. I fell in love with New York and I'm like, this is what I'm doing. And well, I get home from that tour and I get two envelopes in the mail. <laughs> I got the small envelope from Columbia <laughs> and the big envelope from Stanford. And so I, in that moment, I was like heartbroken, just utterly heartbroken that I wasn't going to Columbia. Like you couldn't, it was inconsolable, but you know, didn't take too long for me to be like, okay, Stanford is a pretty awesome opportunity. I'm pretty excited about it. And then I went and went and visited the campus and was like, this is incredible, a beautiful place. Went to Stanford, you know, did my, did my four years there, had like formative experiences. Today is my um, best friend from Stanford 40th birthday. <laughs> we met the first day of school. Maybe I, maybe I just really bond with people. I mean, on the first day of school, right. I will say that I think that there was, it was like a big shock to the system. TJ was such a small ecosystem where I just knew everybody so well. I knew my teachers so well. They all knew me. I sort of knew how to push myself hard. And I had other people around me who were pushing me also, you know, those, I think back and thinking of formative experiences, I think about those Greek classes, Greek two and three, we're just a couple people in the class. And, you know, we'd have, you know, we'd have like individualized tests, you know, right. oral quizzes that that's such a unique thing. I mean, where do you get such individualized learning ever again, really? And so then I get dropped into the sort of much larger school and, and Stanford isn't that big. I mean, the undergraduate school is, I don't know, two or 3000, but still it was gigantic compared to TJ. And I also felt like I wasn't, I think for the first time I felt like, oh, all these other people around me are like so smart and so accomplished. And, you know, I've no longer felt like I, I was that person. So there was a little bit of adjustment to sort of 
focusing, learning how to navigate within Stanford. And I think that actually in some ways I focused a little bit more on the sort of social side of things or, or social doesn't sound quite right. It wasn't like we were just like partying all the time, but it was, you know, a little less academic focused and a little bit more on sort of the other things that were, that were happening. Like I, I met my husband my sophomore year and, you know, that's sort of became a big part of my life back then too. I will say that even the academic classes that I did take, none of them ever felt as challenging as TJ. It's like, it was, yeah, just like, I think I was, I was challenged more. There was more that was expected of, of me as a student, just little things, you know, you're not going to get a hundred percent on a writing project. How can you get a hundred percent? There's no such thing as perfect. That is something that's a concept that I that stuck with me from TJ days, but I never really saw that again anywhere else. At TJ, you're kind of always experiencing being pushed and pushed and pushed in, in this unique academic environment. And then you go on and it's just kind of, is, is there a chance that it's a little bit more of that just over and over again? Or was it truly a different level of challenge? I think the biggest difference for me was actually probably how much I was also being pushed. Like at TJ, there was all, always people around me that I think were also helping make sure that I was working, I was doing my best and I was doing my hardest, um, working my hardest. I think, I mean, a lot of it was internal drive, but then I also had this other group of people, the teachers really that, you know, helped kind of make sure that I wasn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't cut me slack if right. I decided to kind of right. slack off. In college, it wasn't like that. You know, if I chose to kind of slack off, I would not do as well and nobody would say anything about it. I mean, that was just sort of me, right? Like it was, it was right. sort of up to me to make that, make those decisions. And I think it took me a little bit to kind of rebuild some of that just entirely on my own before I, because I also found like I didn't have as many close connections with professors at Stanford as I did at TJ. So like mm -hmm. one of the biggest things that I think about if I could go back to my college days, it would be to like really establish those relationships with some of my professors earlier. And at the same time, it sounds like you were building maybe those relationships with other, with a larger community of students. So maybe there's, there's a trade-off there. Yeah. I um, think that's a great call. I think you know, there was. are only 24 hours in the day. So we <laughs> kind of run out of priorities you could focus yeah. on. It's true. And I still had like a great, I had a great experience there. And then, you know, after I left, after I graduated, I took a year off and then I decided to go to law school. And so that was the sort of next academic venture for me. And how did that compare? I mean, that's a, that's a different level, you know, grads, graduate school in any field is, is just, there's the focus, there's the, usually a smaller community, um, not quite as focused on exploring socially, maybe, and the academic challenge, uh, you know, usually rises a little bit. So how did that compare to previous experiences? So it was a lot less open-ended for better or for worse, right? So there was a, there was more, you know, you could pick a lot of your classes. Your first year classes are dictated for you. And then second and third, you can kind of pick what you want to go into, but still everybody's sort of moving towards the same, it's the same academic world, right? You know, when you're in college, there's so many different things that you could be doing. I really liked law school though. I actually found that, especially after the first year classes, the type of analysis that you were asked to perform and undergo was actually there was pieces of it that were very similar to the type of schooling that I had at TJ. There was a lot of work to be done. Like I actually also knew how to navigate the academic side of law school fairly well because it's a lot of 
you know, note taking, but then you need to like synthesize it and, and become, you know, have a um, facility with a lot of different material and you, how do you digest it and sort of make sure that you're able to use it on the, you know, when you get to your, you know, twice a year exams, which are the only grades that you get. And I think I knew how to navigate that. Those were not skills that I didn't have. Those were skills that I had. And interestingly, I, I gained those skills, not from college, but from TJ, those are things that I like very much pulled back from like my high school, high school days. Right. That's, that's interesting that the skills it is, you know, in a lot of ways, what we hear often is that there's, there's kind of a foundation that we're trying to provide at TJ, right? There's the, not just in the coursework, but in some of the study skills. And then from that foundation, you can go on and explore any field after that. I think it's funny. Like, I think we had like some civics class with Miss Fairbank and I think we were talking about some things. And I remember that being the first time that I like thought about whether or not I wanted to be a lawyer. Like it never really occurred to me before. And I was like, I do like arguing. So maybe that's something. And then I decided, no, there's no way that's what I want to do. I don't want to be a lawyer. And then, you know, then here I am. <laughs> so do you end up using a lot of argumentative skills? Did that, did that fit in as much Very as you, much so. you thought? Yes. <laughs> it's a lot. And it's, but it's, it's, it's more nuanced too. It's, it's persuasion. And, you know, how do you convince people? How do you make and who's your audience, you know, learning those types of things really, really matter. And actually that's some of the things I've explored more recently, which is out of the sort of strict legal world and into the political and policy world, which is adjacent, but like all the constraints are thrown off. There's like rigid rules when you're in court and you have to follow those rules or, you know, the judge is going to smack you down. You have a similar playground in the policy political world, but there's very few rules. And so then it's much more just about who's your audience, what's persuasive. I've had a lot of time actually feedback that I've gotten from managers and bosses and then, you know, all different places where it's like, okay, you want to get into lawyer speak. You want to get into the specifics, the details, the exact answer to somebody's question. And I'm like, of course they want to answer the person's question. I'm trying to convince them of like, you know, I help them understand some issue. Like, no, 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 that's not persuasive. People don't understand things in that way. Or even if maybe some few, you know, wonky people do, if you're trying to convince the public of something, you've got to be more high level, more soundbite. And th those were hard things for me because I want to kind of be in the specifics and in the answers. And so it's, right. so a lot of it is just sort of knowing who your audience is and what you're trying to accomplish. And it resonates a lot with me, you know, coming from a science background, you definitely need to back up your, your arguments with facts and, and oftentimes actual data. And that's not always the case when you're trying to make an argument about something in the public sphere. You, you probably know this uh, better than I do. There's a lot of research about what actually works to convince people to change their mind. And it's not what we would, what most of us hope, it's, which is uh, yeah. logic and, and arguments. What are some of those those issues that you're exploring that you're really passionate about exploring right now and and yeah talk a little bit about about what you're currently working on okay so I'll tell you what I'm currently working on and then I want to go back to and talk a little bit about the sort of transition that I made sort of going from the law firm into tech because I think that there's like mm -hmm. sort of a big transition for me when I made that I went to the law after law school I went to a law firm sort of did the traditional law firm route 
kind of hated it. I mean, great people. I picked a small firm on purpose, but the work was mind numbing. And I'm like, why am I doing this? But I stuck at it for longer than I probably should have out of a lack of imagination, frankly. And then at some point I was like, this is not working. I got to do something else. So I decided to figure out how to go in-house. Honestly, I was like, there's a lot going on in tech. How do I get into tech? And I guess being in, you know, not I guess, being in Silicon Valley and knowing a lot of people here already just helped. And so I started talking to people and I went to Lyft was in the legal team and moved over into policy. I have now left Lyft and some of the things that I'm working on that are, I'm really excited about, there's sort of two things. So one, I'm actually just finalizing a, a non-resident fellowship with the Brookings Institution. We're going to be focusing on tech policy and emerging tech, which is super fun. So I actually have been doing a lot of stuff that gets back to things that I really enjoy, which is just reading and learning and learning about things that are really foreign to me. And so I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a tech, I'm not an engineer. And so when I'm, the, I think one of the things, the first um, things I'm going to focus on is around facial recognition technology and sort of policy implications. And there's a lot of information that's already out there, but I think there's more to do. And so you can talk about inherent bias and sort of bias and algorithms and sort of all of those things. But I am not uh, an engineer. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not any of those things. But I, you know, spent enough time working um, with people in tech and people in policy that I can sort of act a little bit as the bridge between those two areas. And so I'm, it's really fun to like learn about new areas and think about what those policy implications might be. I really like this area as well because it's focusing on things before they're politicized. So, you know, really right when I started to kind of get into the policy world, I had a, a friend and a colleague tell me, he said, you know, I love policy and I hate politics. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. You got it there. I mean, unfortunately, oh, yeah, you don't ever get to implement policy without politics. There's no such thing in mm -hmm. our society anyways, but the politicization of policy issues makes is a very difficult one to sort of navigate. And in our highly politicized world right now, particularly, it's really fun to work on emerging tech issues. And you mentioned the phrase that I want to come back to is you said before, you know, focusing on these issues before they get politicized. So do you have an example or maybe something you're working on now where you see making some policy decisions now that 10 years from now, five years from now, I don't know what a timeline is, whatever is appropriate. What is an example of, of where you see that happening or where it could be happening? Yeah. So an example of something that's already happened. So like the time frame, but like five years back from what you just said is around section 230 and the, and sort of questions around platform freedom and sort of what if what if if internet companies are liable for speech that is on their platforms communications section 230 of the communications decency act so this was a broad legislation most of it was struck down by the supreme court except for section 230 so that's what remains but a lot of people rightly i think credit it with the existence of sort of our large open internet because you know I'm not a, super, a Section 230 expert, but generally speaking, it means that you're not, a company both is not liable for the speech of, of users who are sort of using their platform. And also it allows for companies to regulate some of the speech and, and, and allows them to do it if they choose to in some circumstances. So both of those sides are really important. And now all of a sudden there's questions around um, 230 as everything has come up around Twitter and, you know, banning the former president Trump and sort of that deep politicization of sort of what happens. The, the, the thing that is very confusing to me and I still haven't gotten to the bottom of is repealing Section 230 is not going to mean that 
everybody that wants to say anything can stay can do that is actually going to have the opposite impact where companies are going to be liable for everything that is said on their platforms and there will be much more restrictive speech on the other side of it and so these questions sort of around what is the obligation of a company like twitter or facebook to combat disinformation to combat hate speech i think they're really thorny issues they're not easy you know they're not governmental actors. They're not the public square, but clearly they have massive implications to society. That's like one where Section 230 has become super politicized, even though there's like a real substantive policy conversation to be had about it. Antitrust is another one that I think is sort of having like a revival right now of like, what does antitrust, what is, what is a, what does antitrust mean right now when you have, when you, when it used to be anchored around consumer harm? And if Amazon is not harming consumers because consumers get cheap goods, is there still a different case to be made for sort of antitrust? And is it still anti-competitive in some other ways? I think those are some interesting areas. As I'm digging into these questions around facial recognition technology, there's so many questions around privacy um, and bias inherent in the systems that are used to kind of develop the AI. And it seems to me like there's a pretty clear easy, actually, there's a few low hanging fruit that municipalities could engage in cities around sort of just warning labels that, you know, Mm -hmm. a a lineup that says that these people are potential matches, you know, a police officers cannot use that without doing an additional investigative research to make sure that people are matching because there, there's so many false positives or, you know, incorrect information that are coming in when police are using um, AI. But we see things moving so quickly already because, you know, if you just look at the January 6th, the Capitol insurrection, right. you know, official recognition technology is, was used to identify participants. And, and for me, there's a part of me that's very happy to see that. The other part of me is terrified for what it means when, Every camera that's out there in the world is capturing all of our faces and it's being put into police databases and police and law enforcement are under no obligation to tell people if facial recognition technology has been used. So some disclosure requirements seem like they could be really at least a first step to mitigating some large scale harm, but it's very political to impose any restrictions on law enforcement. Sorry, right. that went way off. No, that's great. That's here. perfect. <laughs> this is uh, uh, really fascinating. So, uh, you know, what are some of the, so if you're you're kind of thinking about, I guess a question is, what do we need to put in place, right? To start to, to not hinder the technology, but use it in a way that we think is going to be beneficial to society. Is that kind of a, a way to summarize that? Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think that the thing I would add to that is it's very difficult to regulate technology because technology shifts so quickly. So how do you figure out, and lawmakers, on top of that, lawmakers are very far removed from even you know, basic technology. Right. It's probably sounds disparaging, but it's absolutely true. I was in DC on the Hill in early, let's see, probably 2015, 2016. And there were some people, some congressional members that I was speaking to that did not know what Lyft and Uber were, like didn't know how to pull it up on their app. Didn't know what that mean, didn't know what that meant. And so these were entities that were like regulating, potentially going to be regulating, which I think regulation is necessary, but how do you do it in a way that allows for the amount of iteration that happens. So like, how do you have things like high enough to kind of cover what's happening, but also allow for the rapid technological change? I don't have an answer to that, but I think that's what the trick is, you know? Do you have an example of where that 
is done well, and maybe there isn't one, but is, is there a technology or a, a field where this is this is done pretty well? It's a really good question. And I'm actually going to take a note of that because I'm going to put that in my Brookings next, the, the thing that I talk about, which is like, where is this done? Because I think this is the actual question that we need to kind of know. And you know, I'm really immersed in a couple areas. I need to, you know, look more broadly and see. I would say that there's been, there's a lot more regulation around the financial um, industry, but I wouldn't necessarily say that means that they've been able to keep up. I would say that, you know, a lot of things around in fintech and fintech regulation is, is also not necessarily right. caught up. I think that things that are regulated at the city and state level have, a, they move more quickly. And so they tend to just be more iterative in that way. So is that just because they can, they can adapt to what their, their constituents are, are hearing, feeling, seeing? Yeah, I think they can. They're closer to what's happening and their process is such that it just can move more quickly. You know, mm. dealing with cities, a city can decide it ha- there's an issue that it wants to address, can have a city council hearing do maybe a little bit of notice and comment and the thing can be out the door in like a month, like very, very quickly for things to move at the federal level. I wonder, I think in California, cannabis regulation, which is sort of a new area that has like popped up, they have done, I think from what I can tell, a good job of sort of thinking really closely about public safety issues, but also allowing for there to be a strong, you know, and regulated cannabis market here. Mm -hmm. In, in many ways, that is comparatively traditional, right? If we're talking yeah. about the, the either from the agriculture side or the medical side, right? Or the, the recreational use side, there's, there's examples to, to lay on top of, right? You can, with agriculture and growing, there's, a, there's an easy system that's already set up with the, yep. the medical regulation. There's a system that's set up. And so I'm wondering if we start emerging in, or you know, kind of venturing into these tech areas that we don't have something to hang our framework on, right? So is that a good thing, a bad thing? Is it, what does that yeah, mean? I think it makes outcomes? it all the more challenging. I, I would say that a lot of times what we mean by tech now is so broad, it can almost encompass anything. The more platform type of tech companies or the ones that are focused on, I mean, I can't, you can't even say the AI because like companies that are using AI and machine learning, that's also integrated within every aspect of, of, of some other company that's happening. So like, you know, is Lyft a technology company? I mean, maybe, yes, there's a lot of investment on the tech side of the house. The employees are all tech or is like huge engineering resources, but it also connects people in the real world out on the ground. And so there's an operational base to it. There is a lot of algorithmic algorithms that are obviously being used, but then, you know, questions around bias and machine learning are being used in that. But, you know, where is that sitting within the tech system? I don't, you know, it's a different question, maybe. I think that like at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of analogs. None of the things that we're dealing with are like completely brand new. And so there is a place to start if, if policymakers are willing to do it and also sort of have the capacity, because it's also hard. I don't want to disparage policymakers. They have a million different issues not a lot of time they have, you know, they go an inch deep on a lot of different things and keeping up with tech is very hard for even the people that are immersed in it. If you were to talk to a current sophomore, so 10th grade, somewhere around the 16, 15 year old, whether they're interested in this or not, do you have any things they should be paying attention to either for future employment or, or just general things to pay attention to in this space? And then maybe broaden out from there, do you have any kind of 
general recommendations or advice that you would give to to a, a current sophomore? I'm going to take the second part first because I think it is an umbrella over the whole thing, which is take risks. I think that's I think I've gotten very good at taking risks now. And by take risks, I mean push yourself, try new things that that are challenging for you academically, professionally, that don't feel like the set path. That's very much what I did for a while, kind of going down the law school, law firm, you know, trudging towards a partnership that I didn't really want. And I think it was only when I really started to have, I don't know, just decide to take the leap and try something new that I, I really, I grew a lot myself and got to have a lot of much more interesting experiences professionally and a lot of other ways as well. So take risks. It's the thing that like, I, I tell my daughter, my daughter is like a very studious and, and thoughtful, sweet, artistic girl. And she's, she's, she's a risk of, she's a risk of kid. She's a rule follower. She like, she wants to know what the rules are and wants to follow them. And that's great. I get it. You know, I totally get where she's coming from, but I want her to like take risks and not be afraid of failure. And, you know, you're only going to know how far you can get if you push yourself far enough to see where you failed. So I wish I had done that a little bit more. I think give myself that advice. And I would very much give that advice to a high school sophomore right now. And then in the, in the other area that I think really jumped out at me as I got deeper immersed into Silicon Valley and seeing what's happening here are really these other areas that I think are super interesting intersections of the liberal arts background and what are needed in traditional tech companies. And I think that I thought for a long time that tech meant, you know, really hard sciences, just, you know, engineering, coding, that kind of thing. But there's so many other areas that are really interesting where I think a liberal arts background is massively helpful. I'm an analytical background. I was actually telling my um, cousin's kids who, you know, one was before he had got, he was a, probably like a sophomore in high school, maybe a junior. There's so many cool jobs in um, data analytics. And you don't have to be somebody who majored in a hard science to learn that area. And there's so, so many jobs and not that any sophomore is going to be necessarily thinking about where to get a job later on in their life, but the work is interesting and there's so much need for it. And so that's like sort of on the, just like the day-to-day -day type of jobs that exist. These like data science jobs, product management, you need people that are analytical, know how to analyze problems and then know how to communicate about them and, and come up with proposals and solutions. So like, that's one area I think is super interesting. The other area that I'm spending a lot of time on right now is just like ethical questions in tech. And if you don't have an integration between the sort of liberal arts people and the science people, <laughs> you're never going to kind of get to a unified or to any kind of understanding of what the ethical obligations are or implications are of, you know, that business. So I think there's just like a lot of stuff to do. And, and for me, I mentioned that because I think earlier when I was a high school student, I thought that they were two very binary black and white separate systems. And I don't think that they are. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening. So I'm very happy of like where I've been able to kind of get into what I'm doing here. But I think there's going to be so many more opportunities for young people growing up today. And I hope that people know about these opportunities because I don't think I would have known about it necessarily in St. Louis back then. That makes a lot of sense. It fits with what you said before, too, about forging your own path. I have some quick questions for you. How about, this might be an easier question, a couple or one memorable teacher or teachers while you were a student? 
I mean, I have lots of memorable teachers. I mean, I, I, you know what? I'll, I'll do, um, we'll do Mr. Roth in my yeah, Greek three class. Greek three. Yeah. The, that's the smaller class you mentioned. How many students were in that class? Six, maybe. Okay. Yeah. The smallest I've taught is five. Something happens between five and 10, where it just feels like exponential as you increase the number of students from there. I don't know. By what the way, is. if you say that to anybody else in the world, that's like, class, oh. what are you talking about? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, actually, to kind of nerd out a little bit on this, there is some a lot of meta studies about class size and, and learning. And oftentimes, they'll find no, no real significant results in the change of class size between, say, mid 20s and 20 to 15 to 20. So around there, you don't really see a lot of change. Depending on the studies you're looking at, there there is some change when you go smaller than that. And that's where, you know, most of TJ class sizes are. And then there's a whole other level of our teachers trained to work at those class sizes. That's that's a different aspect of the research that I think makes an impact too. But there's there's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, that's oftentimes the, those results, well, I shouldn't say oftentimes, sometimes those results are used to justify larger class sizes because there doesn't seem to be a lot of research on it. And then at the other end, the extreme end, there's, there is a lot of research about the learning gains for one-on-one tutoring style teaching. I think if we're closer to that, which we are, and we have teachers who know how to utilize the smaller classes, I think we, we see those benefits there. Totally. Sorry, I traded off a little bit of uh, of nerdy research. How about this? Favorite book from the TJ curriculum? You know, the book that stuck with me for, I don't know why, it's Heart of Darkness. Oh. Yeah. And I've turned back to it and read it many times since high school. Yeah. That one hasn't come up uh, before. So that's, that's a good one. And then how about this? Best dorm and using one word as an explanation. Why is it the best? Hmm. I feel like I was a day student. I would just like hang out with like wherever my friends were hanging out. So I think I was in yellow and that's the one I have like the most like memories of, but I didn't actually do a whole lot in yellow. So maybe that's not, so maybe it would be like, you know what? Maybe it would be like the top of Gables. Is Gables still there? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And we, we refer to it as up Gables now and yeah. like up okay. Gables and maybe. down Gables. That's a, that's a nice space. And oh, the reason, one word. It's private. Private. That's <laughs> fair. Yeah. Well, I have one final question. The end of our mission is that we instill in our students a desire to lift up the world with beauty and intellect. So I'm kind of curious how you today live the mission of TJ. <laughs> Well, I hope that I do. I'm not sure I get to say that. I don't know if I can say that conclusively. We can strive. We can strive um, towards it. I think the biggest place I think about it is just how we, how I try to raise, how I'm raising my children and how I think about that's like such a, a specific and unique impact in the world. Trying to raise empathetic, kind, courageous people. And then the other thing maybe is I think a lot about where do I have impact? So I think there's a lot of things that I do for work that are broad scale and deal with a lot of different people. And then there are ways that I impact people just, you know, being a senior leader within an organization in terms of my time for mentoring or just representation, being a woman of color in a senior position, those things matter. And just really trying to take 
being intentional and try to take time for the people that are a little earlier in their career for whatever that might be, just as a sounding board, but try to be, try to be the type of leader that I would want to see. That's, I think a lot about how I think about my specific impact in the world. It's a perfect place to end things. (laughs) Thanks for joining today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. It was really nice to chat. If you'd like more information about TJ, please go to tjs.org, or you can find us on social media. Look for Thomas Jefferson School on Facebook or tj underscore stl on Instagram. If you want to help by contributing to TJ to help support us in delivering our mission or to bring more conversations like this one, go to tjs.org slash giving. Well, that's great news. I feel like that just means like normalcy is on the horizon. We can see some hope for sure.